I want to share a word with you this morning that, and I feel like I've been saying this every week, but I mean it each week. It's very near and dear to my heart, and each Sunday, including today, I have felt like if you can take away one message from the whole series, I'd want you to take this one away, and I feel that way about this one. The title of the talk is Jesus and the Gospel, and it seems a little bit redundant, doesn't it? Isn't Jesus the Gospel? I think that's something that we take for granted, however, I had the um, burden and privilege of traveling all around the world, meeting lots and lots of leaders and pastors, starting new congregations, connecting with other denominations and other churches all around the country and the world. And it was my sad observation that most preachers do not preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, I've heard lots of sermons even this week in preparation for this one comment. And I heard sermons about financial margin, how important it is to manage money well and to have margin, which is totally true. I agree with that. I heard a sermon about morality, and it was a sermon that actually was more specific and said you shouldn't get drunk with too much wine. And I thought, I agree with that. I actually have never been drunk before in my life. But there was no mention of Jesus. Oh, they prayed in Jesus' name. But it was really about sobriety and financial margin. There was another sermon that I heard. It was about wisdom. How wisdom is very, very important. How we need to seek wisdom and be hungry for wisdom and pursue wisdom. How wisdom is the key to life and how we are fools and we lack wisdom. And then it was, Amen. And you realize as a preacher and as a church, it's really easy to do that. I can preach a really solid sermon about how important it is for husbands to love their wives and how important it is for wives to respect their husbands. Because the Bible says so. Or I can preach an equally fantastic sermon about the importance of raising children well, how important it is to create a well-adjusted home environment. And people would feel good about that and feel like, Wow, that's really helpful, that's practical, it came from Scripture. And then we can all say amen, go home and be happy and think we did church. But it is my conviction and observation that if churches do that, we're no different than synagogues. And it's what I have come to call over the last four years, synagogue sermons. It's sermons which are full of wisdom and principles and truths and helpful advice and it's practical. But Jesus in no way, shape, or form had to die and be resurrected for that sermon to be true or to be preached. I want to ask you, what makes a Christian church a Christian church? That's right. Jesus is the answer. 
Did you know that? Jesus is what makes our gathering distinct. It's what makes my speaking distinct and different. There's lots of better speakers out there, lots of motivational speakers, and lots of nonprofit organizations, and lots of helpful humanitarian groups. Why be a church, though? Because we, for whatever reason, choose to bear the stigma of the name of Jesus Christ. We choose to embrace the stumbling block that is Jesus Christ. And so we don't preach about the gospel because we understand that Jesus wasn't just somebody who conveyed the gospel. He wasn't just the messenger, but he himself in his person was the message. He is the gospel. You can't have a message apart from the gospel. Implications of the gospel do not add up to the gospel. You know, uh, lots of young church planners are out there. And I don't know uh, how long this trend is going to continue. It's what theologians are calling the new liberalism. It's when young conservative church planners and pastor types sort of embrace social justice ministries as the key expression of the gospel and say, for us, we're going to be a gospel-centered church, and the way we are going to be church is by emphasizing social justice. We're going to work with the least, the last, and the lost. I'm telling you, every church planner and their mother wants to do this. It's even surpassed the interest of being multi-ethnic. Multi-ethnic is so yesterday. Today it's all about societal justice. We can be the best church at social justice and still miss Jesus altogether. Because societal justice is just an implication of the gospel. It is not the gospel. The gospel is the person of Jesus Christ. And this is what makes Christianity distinct and different. This is why the minutes I spend up here are worthy of your time because I'm not talking about doing good. I'm not talking about morality. I'm not talking about our works. I'm not talking about principles or wisdom. I'm not giving you advice. But I'm trying to preach Christ and Him crucified. And as I lift Him up through my words, we together are drawn to Him. This is, this is what it means to be church, a Christian church. Otherwise, I'm just preaching synagogue sermons, which are great, which are helpful. But it's not the reason why we are gathered here. If you want to do social justice, get out of here. Go join another organization because there's lots of organizations that are doing it way better than Mercer Island Covenant Church. We fumble, we stumble, we make mistakes. We're non-professionals coming together, but we're doing it in Jesus' name. And that's the difference. It is my experience and my reading of Scripture that Jesus alone is Savior. He alone is the great mediator. And it is the observation for me personally that I need this mediator in every facet of my life. 
And if I don't have Jesus as a mediator, either I will kill myself, destroy myself, or I will kill everything else that I touch. I need a mediator. And so we look at a passage like today where I have actually preached on this passage before, and it was about money. Now, who would read this passage and not preach about money? Clearly, Jesus is talking about money. And yet, we learn from Scripture and out of the mouth of Jesus himself that all Scripture is about himself. This is what he said to the two disciples who are walking on the road to Emmaus, discussing the recent happenings about this man named Jesus who did great things. And then he was arrested, and then he was tortured, and then he was killed. And he said he was going to be raised back from the dead, and where is he now? They were discussing these things amongst themselves, and Jesus came up to them, and he said, "Um, so everything you're talking about is actually all about me. The scriptures are all about me. And so I understand that Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 24, it's not ultimately about money, but it's actually about Jesus. This passage does describe some realities. Uh, For example, there's great wisdom in the fact that moth and rust do destroy. Anybody have sweaters that got destroyed by moths? Yeah. Anybody seen some precious metalwork in your home get destroyed by rust? Yep. Moth and rust do destroy. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for sharing that message with us. Thieves do break in and steal. Anybody had this experience? Yep, I took my sisters to a movie once in New York City, came out, and my brand new, fully decked Toyota 4Runner Limited was gone. I had just gotten it from my grandparents as a graduation present. I had it for a month, and I bet within minutes it was torn up, sold in pieces somewhere. Thieves do break in and steal. Susie and I had an Outback, Subaru Outback, that was stolen right out of our driveway. I wrote a song about it. It went something like, the Outback is Outback, no more. (laughs) So thank you, Jesus, for that reminder. Amen. And then he drops this little bomb at the end. You cannot serve God and money. What? Where in the world did God come from? I thought we were talking about money. So what is this passage really about? There's lots of things that are true. But what is the truth? And I think the truth that's ultimately life-saving, it's not about doing money well, though you should. It's not about generosity. It's not about stewardship. It's not about sacrifice or kindness or goodness. The truth is not about morality or a lifestyle change. It's not even about knowing the truth or getting it right or even being right. It's not even about being righteous as if righteousness was something we can obtain. But really... I think what's happening here is Jesus is depicting depicting a dilemma, a lose-lose scenario. 
and is forcing us to look at a third truth, a greater truth. So the dilemma here at the end is you cannot serve both God and money. Now, I don't like this because I like money and I also like God. But I feel like Jesus is making me choose. It's lose-lose. I don't want to choose between God and money. Amen? Nobody here wants to choose between God and money. We all want both. If that's not worthy of amen, this sermon is lost. That truth is like, if you're not Christian, it doesn't matter. You, that, everybody in the room can say amen to that. How do you choose between God and money? And the third truth is that the truth actually is a person. His name is Jesus. And his work on our behalf and our trust in him is what money is actually all about to begin with. We never have to choose between money and God. Okay, ready? Verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, that's good advice, right? There is truth to that because moth and rust do destroy. Thieves do break in and steal. But here's a more interesting question to me. There's an assumption in that statement. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. So why do you and I store? Why do we like storing things so much? Why do we have a tendency to store? Why is it within our nature to store? What's so fun about storing? Why do we do that? These are rhetorical questions. You all can just calm down. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I know it's fun. Why do we have a strong and innate tendency to store? Why do we need to have it at our disposal? Why is my happiest place on earth Costco? This is, this is, this is true. On my days off on Friday, if you want to know where I am, I will be at the Costco in Issaquah. This is what I do. This is my happy place. Why do I do this? Why do we love storing? Why, if we see a beautiful flower, do we have to pick it? Why, if we feel bad about picking it, do we have to take a picture of it? Why can't we just enjoy it, let it be, and walk away? Why is there this need in us to possess, to own, to control? Do you hear the indictment in Jesus' statement? Do not store up for yourselves. We feel it. We live it. We die for it. We know that we by ourselves are insufficient. We lack We're deficient. We're empty. This is what it means to be human. This is a universal human experience. To feel the deficiency 
and to always and forever be compensating for this sense of emptiness. He doesn't stop there. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures. Why treasures? Why isn't, just, why isn't it just storage? But it's storage of beautiful things, of lasting things, of worthy things. Why? Because we're compensating. You and I, we feel worthless. We feel useless and valueless. Why associate ourselves with all of this beauty if we didn't feel ugly? To be human, I think, is to know on a deep, deep level our very sense of inadequacy. We just know we are not enough. And when we see something that is worthy or beautiful, we feel that attraction like moth to a flame. Verse 21 and 22. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. And Jesus is really beginning to dig beneath our human nature, getting, get, giving us a close-hand look at what we are really like. And this is what he's saying. Whatever our hands touch, because of this deficiency we live with, whatever our hands touch, we begin to want to possess. We begin to treasure it. Our hearts go there. Our hearts are directly connected to our hands. We don't have the ability to touch something and, and not treasure it. Isn't that frightening? That we are made by God, for God, to worship Him. But until we get there, we're touching all these other things. And everything we touch, we treasure We're all like a teething baby just putting everything in our mouths. It's almost a survival instinct. It's like you don't know what to eat yet, so just eat everything. I was putting together an event, and uh, usually I'm not the one uh, who enjoys coordinating the events, but this event I happen to be coordinating, and I put myself in charge of getting all the snack foods for this day-long event. And I went to Costco. I thought long and hard about what people would like and, and uh, what is healthy, walking the fine line between health and keeping the blood filled with sugar so people are attentive and, you know, all of that good thinking. And uh, I, I, set up the food out, I set the food out in, pretty, in a strategic way because if I'm going to do it, I'm going to take it seriously. You know, so I assessed the room and figured out the chairs and all of that and put the food in the most optimal places. And uh, I was leading this event also. Three times during the five-minute intro orientation that I gave to the group, three times I mentioned the food. Three times I subtly but very clearly let people know that there was food available for consumption and how snacking is important 
and how if our blood sugar is low, then we're not going to be able to learn as much and engage as much. And oh, look, I happen to have purchased some high-protein snacks as well. And then some uh, vegetables with roughage to aid in digestion. And oh, look, somebody does such a great job with the food. Now, prior to this event, I had never thought about food before. Why was I so cognizant about food? Well, because I was the one that had prepared it. I had the one who had put my hands to it, my my fingers. I had driven the car that picked up the food. I thought about it. I rearranged the room strategically, placing chairs facing the food. And I cared very deeply about people's enjoyment and appreciation of the food. Now, I I only assume you are laughing because you can relate. This is human nature, isn't it? Whatever our hands touch, we treasure. Whatever we look to, we end up trusting. What we look to becomes our hope, our safety, and our trust. Right now, we are a hundred yards from the finish line of the church parsonage being done. Guess what our hope is in? Guess what we believe from the bottom of our hearts that if only, if only what, then all of our problems would be over. Yeah, it's moving into the parsonage. Why does that happen? And once we get into the parsonage, we're going to be noticing all the different ways it could be improved. And if only it can be improved, then, then. Now you and I, we all have lots of if-only thoughts, don't we? What are your if-only thoughts? If only, then what? If only, then there'll be another if-only, and then another if-only. But we can't help it. We know this, that every if-only thought we've ever had, once realized, has disappointed us. They have let us down time and time again. They continually over-promise and under-deliver, if at all. And yet, we can't help it. If we look to it, we trust it, we long for it, we pine away. Now, scientists have studied this, and sociologists and economists economists have studied this, and this fact is called the endowment effect. Anybody know what the endowment effect is? It is when we value more above logic and rationale the things that we touch and own. And, you know, uh, real estate agents know this, that people who own their homes tend to way overvalue their homes for no other reason other than the fact that they happen to own it, right? And so it creates sort of this halo effect. Scientists did a research, and uh, they did this research with mugs, in fact. And what they found out is that when a person is asked to value this very generic, random, normal-looking mug, they valued it at a certain price. And then they were asked to touch the mug for one minute timed them and then they asked them to value the mug 
And then they asked him to touch it for two minutes. And they went on like this up to 15 minutes. And by the time people got to 15 minutes, they were valuing the mugs up to 120% more. All it took was for somebody to touch this random mug they had never, ever seen before for 15 minutes. And all of a sudden, they begin to treasure it. In fact, in the study, the people who touched the mugs over 10 minutes wanted to, out of their own pocket, buy the mugs themselves. I like to put up Facebook pictures, and I think my kids are beautiful. And uh, every time I put up pictures... And I did a little bit of uh, professional photography in another life, so I, I, I really want, uh, you know, to showcase my work. And so I put up pictures of my kids, and Susie and I just cannot sleep. Each night I put up pictures. I only do it about once every two months because we're staying up all night waiting for comments. <laughs> and not only do we read the comments, but we're looking at the pictures again. And if we're ranking their comments too. Who has the best comments and who tends to always have the best comments? And how wonderful she is and what a wonderful human being she is. And it clearly shows in these kind of comments. But I tell you what, my favorite comments are not about how cute my kids are. But it's about how great my photography is. <laughs> I tell you, it takes nothing Nothing for me to treasure something, to put my trust in something. And I'm not thinking at that moment, my identity is wrapped up. I'm not having existential moments all the time. But somehow it finds its way into my identity and my sense of worth and value and purpose and mission. And suddenly I find minutes and dollars and weeks and a whole season of life being spent on something. And I don't know how I ended up worshiping this thing. But if I'm giving my life to something, I think that's what Scripture calls worship. And so verse 24 is the great indictment. No one can serve two masters. By design, our hands are made to serve, to give, and we will serve Whatever we touch, whatever we look to, we will trust. And so the way I like to say it is that you and I do not have the capacity to have direct contact with anything. This is what it means to be human, to be allergic to direct contact. And Jesus says, How great is that darkness? If the thing that we are looking to, we think that's light, we think that's life. I'm looking to Facebook comments and kitchen cabinets for light. How great is that darkness? If that's what I consider hope, if that's what I consider trust, how great my darkness must be. That's what Jesus says. Direct contact. I do not have the ability to have direct contact with my kids. 
If I'm a good dad, then I become somebody who's a good dad. And all of a sudden, I start priding myself on being a good dad. Then I judge other people who I think are lesser good dads. Or if I'm a bad dad, then I beat myself up about being a bad dad. And I mess up my kids in the process. Or if I become a good dad, then I lower that over them. And now they owe me something for being a good dad. That's the human condition. I don't have the ability to have direct contact with my kids, whether I fail or whether I succeed. I am damned if I do, damned if I don't. Rock in a hard place, the dilemma of life, of what it means to be human. What if I'm a good pastor? That's going to destroy me, you understand? But if I'm a bad pastor, that's going to destroy you. But then if I'm a good pastor... I'm going to lower that over you. Oh, you bet I'm going to be entitled. And you better be good parishioners if I'm going to be a good pastor. And that's going to destroy you. And that's going to destroy us. What do you have the capacity to touch directly? Do you know how to be good? I don't think so. Do you know how to be bad and not destroy yourself? I don't think so. We, we are in desperate need of a mediator. I need Jesus between me and my children. I can't handle them by myself. I need Jesus in my marriage. I need Jesus between you and me. I need Jesus between me and my money. I need Jesus between me and everything. I'm scared. My parents are coming for Thanksgiving. So are my sisters. They're coming Tuesday. They're not leaving till Friday. You bet I need a mediator. Do not leave me and mom alone in the same room. Don't do it. Don't do it. So Jesus in Luke 24, 26 to 27 says, Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. You think you can handle truths and principles and wisdom without beating yourself or beating other people up over it? No, all of the good things in Scripture are actually about Jesus, not about our goodness. It's not about you or me. It's about Jesus. It was necessary. There is no other way. It was rock and hard place. It was Jesus or nothing. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer. Direct contact will kill us. Now, let me apply this in three ways, and then we'll end. I've been at this church now for about two and a half months. Can you believe it's only been two and a half months? And that first month, I didn't even preach. I feel like I've been here for a long time. It feels so at home. And I can honestly say, if you heard my wife and I talking amongst ourselves, honestly and without filter about this church, you would hear that we love this church. 
Our kids love life here, and we're so glad to be here. We feel like we are caught up in something bigger than us. You didn't bring me here. I didn't bring me here. I just, I feel like, I'm going to use God's name here. God brought us here. I just, I feel like that. And it feels right and good. We've been so happy here. Can't you tell? Don't you feel the chemistry? But don't, please don't leave this church and me in the same room without a mediator. Do you know you and I, we need Jesus between us? It takes nothing for things to start slipping, for things to start getting ugly and tension and angst and weird. And so that's the first application, that I cannot be trusted. You cannot be trusted. We are not trustworthy. Jesus alone is worthy of our trust. And so please pray that we have a mediator. Your church, now my church, now our church, we are what they call a vitality project. We have been self-identified by the Veritas team and the members who participated in that process as a critical moment slash at-risk church. That means that we have about, okay, a 3% chance of turning around and become a vibrant church. Now, I have set my hands to the plow. I'm not looking back, and I'm going down with this ship. But I don't intend to go down. 3% success rate. If we succeed, we need Jesus. If we fail, we need Jesus. We are no good by ourselves. Second application. Because direct contact kills us, I want to invite you to pray for Jesus to be your mediator. Now, I understand that some of you have been Christians, in quotes, for a long time, and yet you have never thought about Jesus as your great mediator. You thought he sort of just cleaned you up so that you get a second chance at life. You've already messed that up a long time ago, FYI. You need more than a second chance. You need a mediator. Whatever number of redo you're on, that's not going to work. If you failed at A, and so you got B, and you failed at B, that means you're going to fail at C. You need Jesus. You don't need you again. You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. You're not competent enough. You're, you're nothing enough. But the point isn't to be enough. It's to trust Jesus. And so I want to invite you to pray for Jesus to be your mediator. And for Many of you, I suspect, it's going to be the first time ever. Say, come between me and my kids. Come between me and my job. Come between me and my future. Come between me and my body. Come between me and my self-esteem and my mind and everything else that is me. Come between. Don't let me have direct contact with anything. And lastly, lots of you, I've been so amazed at how lots of you have taken me up on doing this fasting thing. Fasting is an intentional way to create a vacuum. And what that does is it allows Jesus to be experienced within, this, within that vacuum. And so I think this is such a neat way to say, Jesus, I just really want that right now or need that right now, but I'm fasting from it. 
Come be my mediator. And so the third application point is to continue in your fast. And if you haven't started fasting yet, this is a good day to start. We're going to break it together in a couple of weeks. So will you invite Jesus to be your mediator? Do you confess that direct contact is not helpful? We need Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me? Jesus, we love control. We love feeling like we're contributing, that we get to play some part. We love sort of being a value add and being part of the teams in some way. And many of these ideas are good, but having direct contact with it, we just get so sucked into it. There's so many good things, but it just becomes corrupt because we trust it, we look to it, we worship it. So Jesus, we invite you to be our mediator today between me and the church, between us and everything else. Be our mediator. Come be our savior. If you are here today and you have never accepted Christ as your mediator, as your Savior, I want to invite you to pray. Say, Jesus, be my mediator. Separate me from my life and my sins and everything and everyone. Be between. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. Save us, we pray, in Jesus' name.